I need to go back to Brazil because I have no good memories of it at all. Huh. And all the other bands hated each other too. That was interesting. I watched um, uh, Billy Corgan and um, what's her face, the bass player, the crazy Darcy. one, Darcy, Darcy have uh, like like actually like like have a fist fight backstage, like like in punch person. each other in the face. Yeah. Wow. God. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Nobody was having a good time. We're in Brazil. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talked to Jay Younger, an American expatriate who's traveled the world extensively for much of the past decade. Jay first came on my radar not for travel, actually, but way back in 1992 for this. This is the song Thunder Kiss 65 by the Grammy-nominated band White Zombie. Jay Younger was the guitarist for White Zombie during the height of their multi-platinum fame in the 1990s, and for my money, his Thunder Kiss groove was one of the most iconic guitar riffs of that decade. When White Zombie became popular around that time, their sound was so unusual that MTV didn't quite know how to categorize them, and they have the distinction of being the first band to appear on both MTV's metal-oriented Headbangers Ball and the alternative rock show 120 Minutes. After the band broke up, Jay moved to New Orleans and later began to travel the world in earnest. He's now based in Spain. I learned about this not long ago when I realized he was following me on Instagram, which is how we eventually connected in real life. Turns out my book Vagabonding was an influence on his decision to travel the world long term, and when he came up to hang out with me in France this summer, it created this weird moment of full circle synchronicity for me, since I remember arguing for the greatness of Jay's Thunderkiss riff with my friends in Kansas back in 1996, just weeks before I left overseas on an Asia journey that wound up changing my life and eventually became the raw material for a travel book that Jay ended up quoting back to me in Paris in 2018. Since White Zombie broke up in the late 1990s, Jay has worked as a recording engineer and record producer. He remastered the music from classic movies like The Warriors and Taxi Driver for a series of limited edition LPs put out by Waxworks. He's also wandered the planet, exploring and taking photos in places like Iceland, Romania, Myanmar, Cambodia, Japan, Morocco, and Senegal. I've put a link to his Instagram account and his website in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. We sat down to talk at the Jardin des Plantes, which is the ornate 17th century botanical garden on the left bank of the Seine River in Paris. Our conversation deviates into all kinds of topics, from Jay's rags to riches rock and roll success story back in the day, to the way music has come to play a different role in the lives of young people than it did in the 1980s and 1990s, to what it's like to travel the world in an open-ended way and, on occasion, to come across people wearing white zombie t-shirts in places like Poland and Myanmar. We start by talking about Jay's trip to Cuba and how travel has a way of limiting your access to technology in a good way. Let's listen in. One way that Cuba had a profound effect on me was that it was the first time since we've had um, iPhones that I couldn't use any technology because I'm right. American, so my credit card didn't work, my devices didn't work. Um, there was no Wi-Fi, you know, yeah. there was, what it year was, was this? Uh, this was, a, I don't know, 20, 2012, 2013, I can't remember okay. exactly, I'd have to look at my journal, but um, not that long ago. Um, I know it's different now, but um, we, we just stepped back into the 1970s, and it was very interesting because the first, like, night, I, I woke up, like, 
because I couldn't, I would, you know, the, the whole galaxy that I'm used to having around me at all times, you know, like, like social media was gone and I was truly by myself in this crazy place. But then the next morning I was just in the 70s and since I was actually alive in the 70s, right. I just slipped back into being that person. And what that made me think about was like, okay, well, I can just go back to being who I was because huh. I spent a lot of my time, a lot of my life before there was uh, technology like that. I wonder what that would be like for people, very young people. Right, like a 16-year-old who hasn't experienced the... You know, life without a pull-down menu. Jaron Lanier, mm-hmm. I'm probably saying his name wrong, but I saw a YouTube clip of him recently and he talked about how, you know, to know yourself you need context. And so he sort of encouraged... He didn't explicitly say that everybody should travel, but he used travel as an example of something where just just so you know who you are outside of this matrix information, unplug for six months just to see what it's like. Travel mm-hmm. around, keep yourself occupied. And, you know, um, even 10 or 15 years ago, that just would have seemed like crazy advice. It's like who... <laughs> uh, well, actually, no, it would have seemed... The situation would have seemed crazy, you know, it would have seemed, well, why would you tell somebody to do that? You mm-hmm. know, how hard can that be? Now it seems like it might be cripplingly difficult well, um, for young people who just, their entire frame of reference is, is, is the world in their pocket, you know? Yeah, I mean, again, you know, I'm not that, that's not my entire frame of reference, but when you said that, I got, like, a feeling in the pit of my stomach, like, six months? Are you yeah. insane? Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's not a rational thought, that was just my first reflex, but that's kind of crazy. Yeah, you know. that's like a lizard brain fear. It's yeah. it's, it's weird to think about. Um, <laughs> Six months. Well, I, I, I would need email, I think. You know, I can go off social, mm-hmm. smart... Maybe maybe it's just a smartphone thing. But I actually, I do a lot of social on my laptop, too, and it's oftentimes wasted time. Yeah. So, um, anyhow, let's, let's set up some okay. context a okay. little bit. We can come back to this, and I'm curious to know. It sounds like we've been hanging out, just so the listeners know, we've been hanging out for, what, 12 hours, mm-hmm. 15 hours in Paris. Um, Jay got here last night. I have another buddy in town. And because we're <laughs> in a public place, that is a security officer's radio we're hearing right now. I was going through my Instagram followers one day, and it's like, Jay Younger, how do I know that name? That sounds familiar. And then I realized that I listened to your music, you know, in the 90s, that in... in uh, 1990s, I really dug White Zombie, and in fact, I don't know if other people have said this to you, but like the Thunderkiss riff mm-hmm. is like one of the great <laughs> riffs of the 90s, if not the 20th century. Have you have you heard that? People have said that, yeah. Yeah, and th- that is completely. It's not just because you're an Instagram follower. That in the 90s, I thought that was the awesomest riff ever. Um, <laughs> And, like, I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of White Zombie, especially the early years before you were a member of the band. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know, how, like, I had conversations about the moshability of Thunder Kiss, <laughs> like, in, in my early 20s. Um, and, you know, of course, the two... Did you record three albums with White Zombie? Two. Two. So yeah. it was Astro Creep and, and Sex Resisto. Yep. Is it Sexorcisto or Sexorcisto? La Sexorcisto. La, la Sexorcisto. <laughs> uh... And so I suspect I know why you followed me on, on Instagram, but just out of curiosity, how do, how do you know about me? Uh, well, I, I will tell you the story, and it's you've probably heard this exact story quite a bit. Um, I, uh, so, so I grew up traveling because my father was a reporter, and I, I lived in other countries a couple times before I was a teenager. Um, and then... With the band, I was I was on tour constantly for a couple of years, 
which um, I'd like to know some more details okay. about eventually. Um, I traveled some after, and more recently in my life, um, I was had you know after um, travel got easy, and after you could, like. If you were interested in the place, you could go on your laptop and look through a traffic camera and experience what it was like to actually be on the street there. After all that, I was um, I was in New Orleans, and I was feeling you know New Orleans is a is a place you can really get stuck into. It's geographically isolated. Um, it's very very comfortable to live there, or at least it was. And I really the the kind of you know Bourdain like age of like travel is the coolest thing now had started. And I couldn't unstick myself. Like, I couldn't make myself start to travel. Every time I even thought about it, I just, it, like, I started going crazy. And, and I this thought, is when you were in New Orleans, post-band. Yeah. yeah, this was in, like, you know, very early, like, like the, the very late aughts. Okay. Um, and I, I thought, like, well, I don't, I don't need to go buy, like, a Lonely Planet travel guide. I, is, is there a book about, like, how to travel? Or, like, how to make yourself start traveling? Or, like... So I I, um, I went to the big box bookstore, and I found I got two. I got um, uh, Vagabonding, and I got The Practical Nomad by Edward Hasbrook. Um, and um, I liked Hasbrook's book a lot. I've met him it was, before. Yeah, um, it, it wasn't. I felt like it was more like for baby boomers. It wasn't really mm. like for you know. I felt it like it was a little skewed, a little older than than what I was looking for. Um, and Vagabond maybe skewed like a little younger, but it was much more. Uh, it ended up being much more helpful. So, you know, I, I've, uh, I'd, I'd have to say that vagabonding more than any other single thing is what, I, what got me off my ass and, and what got me out into the world. And it feels ridiculous because, you know, I didn't have a dog. I didn't, you know, I was freelancing. I was just doing sound work and recording bands and stuff. No kids? Didn't, didn't, no kids, didn't own a house. I'm like, what the, you know, so I was really down on myself. What the fuck is keeping you here? But, you know, it's fear. Yeah. And it's being overwhelmed at the choice. You know, when you're an American, you've got the good passport. It's like the choices are overwhelming. Um, so I, I think that, that your book um, kind of calmed me down. Hmm. And uh, I don't know. Were you the one who said, um, you know, if you're if you're if you feel like you know you can't you can't cope with like figuring out a trip, buy the tickets first and then fill in yeah. between. You know, it's it's like like give your give yourself a, an outline, and then the trip will fill itself in much easier. You's, I, I say a lot that, that mm-hmm. as much as you research in advance, the trip is going to teach you what you need to know. Mm-hmm. You know that um, people get anxious about not knowing what to expect, but humans are adaptable. I mm-hmm. mean, this, this even goes back to the whole smartphone connectivity thing: is that we've spent all these years of human existence adapting to all kinds of crazy situations, and um, for everything that you've studied at home you're going to be a hundred times smarter after a week and a half on the road because mm-hmm. you're, you're in it. You're making those decisions. You're using your intuition and stuff. Yeah. So did you, like, how, um, did you start setting concrete goals then or from late aughts? Were you traveling in the late aughts or were, were you, was it the early 2010s when you were out on the road, before um, you were on the road? Well, I went on my first big trip by myself. I went, I... It, it, I got into this super travel snob thing where I was like, well, I hear that, you know, South Vietnam is super, like, Western and inauthentic, so I'm only going to Northern Vietnam, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and so I went to Hanoi for two weeks. Um, straight to Hanoi? Straight to Hanoi. And that was pretty amazing. Um, and then, but yeah, and then after that, I don't know why, I just got stuck 
and I was really down on myself because it's like there's no earthly reason for you not to be traveling. Mm -hmm. you know, what are you doing? And in the meantime, you know, I'd, I'd meet like the the dude who's like, you know, he's he's like bussing tables at the burrito place, and he's like, yeah, I bummed around Southeast Asia for a couple of years. I'm like, God damn it, I'm smarter than that guy. Fuck, you know? Right. right. <laughs> Why am I not doing that? Well, that's a good point of comparison sometimes. You can overthink it, but then yeah. people who, who are doers, even if they don't have a lot of money, and we've already talked about that Charlie Sheen line, which mm -hmm. people are in my book. I'm telling you, that's that's the one people hang on to. Yeah. It's, it's easy to keep that in your head. Like, I could just work for a couple of months and go to China. Yeah. You know, it's totally true. Would, would you, like, have a white zombie nest egg, or do you have... Um, do you do music work? I mean, how do you fund your travels now? Uh, well, I, I, we did sell five million records, so you right. know, so I don't have to work. Okay. Um, you know, up until recently, I was doing a lot of uh, mastering for vinyl, um, sound sound design work, which I want to um, come back to as well. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm pretty lucky. Uh -huh. I can uh, I can afford to live. Right. Mm -hmm. So you didn't you didn't burn out uh, your your rock and roll money? No. On fast cars. Very lucky. Very lucky. Yeah. <laughs> And was that a, was that a deliberate thing? I mean, or is that just sort of part of being your parents' son? You know, just sort of saving up and and or, or did you have a burnout rock rock star phase where you were living hard and being unwise with your lifestyle? Not. I think I think when I moved to well, I moved to New Orleans um, uh, while I was getting divorced, and yeah, I, I kind of burned it at both ends for a while there. You know, yeah. made some bad decisions. I mean, that's kind of what people do. You know. Right. <laughs> so maybe let's go back a little bit. Okay. Um, and I, I do want to just enjoy some travel nerdery with you at some All point. Right. But uh, I want, let's get some backstory first. Okay. In part because our, a lot of my listeners might be sort of like me, is they, they, they totally rocked out to, to White Zombie back in the day, but don't know a lot of your backstory. Mm -hmm. Maybe don't know a lot about, about what it's like to travel as a musician and how that's changed. Like informally we've talked you said that you become more insulated as you become more successful it's true your, your travels as a musician yeah um, become sort of sterile compared to the old grungy in the van days mm -hmm. uh, I know that you're from Chicago I know that you lived overseas for a while because your your dad was a journalist um, and I know that you hardcore was your first into music so mm -hmm. like when was your when was the first time that you thought maybe music was something that you would sort of shape your future around um, 1981, which okay. is when I went to my first hardcore show, and for the next couple of years, that's all I cared about. Okay. Was you know, how do I make a band? Like, how, how do we? So I would have been 14. Okay. You know, how do we make a record? How do you build a stage? How does a PA work? You know. So mm -hmm. it, it's you know, very well, healthy thing. Well, actually, hardcore is pretty DIY. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Always was. Um, and, and so for my listeners who don't know, and you can correct me if this is a bad definition, but hardcore is sort of like an American distillation of the punk ethos that's less about fashion than about noise and energy and, and speed. That's, yeah, it's sort of the, uh, you know, the, the second wave of, of punk rock and it, and it mutated a great deal. I mean, hardcore really doesn't have much to do with the classic, like, you know, British guy with a safety pin in his cheek. And a mo know. green mohawk yeah, type Yeah, or thing. whatever, yeah. yeah. Um, so it was usually long, young, loud, fast bands mm -hmm. um, uh, doing their thing. I mean, I think you think of Black Flag, Minor Threat. Are those the iconic hardcore bands? Yeah, from that era, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you saw, so you saw some shows in '81. Mm -hmm. You were a teenager, and you decided to, to join this world uh, yourself. And so, did you become a hardcore 
a musician? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Started playing guitar. Um, uh, put together a band of like 14 and 15 year olds. Started opening shows for touring bands. Um, but you know, it's it's uh, at that time it that it was kind of inevitable. I mean, the the electric guitar was the voice of the generation, kind of. You know. Um, Rock music was, and, and you know, all the all the forms of rock music, hardcore being one, rock music was everything. Music was everything, you know, in high school. Everybody, not just people who were into like punk or metal or rock or whatever, all the different tribes, everybody was defined by what kind of music they liked. I think it was probably still that way when you were a kid. Absolutely. Yeah. And do you think maybe it's not quite that way? That I don't much? think at all. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think kids still like music, but I don't think... It, it occupies the same space that it did at all. It's not as important. Right, and we were just talking in another context about, like I was scared of Metallica for a while, not because <laughs> of the music, but because of people who listened to Metallica. Mm -hmm. And it, it, they advertised to themselves in the hall of the school with their tough guy mustaches and their, and their Metallica back patches on their, on their jeans jackets. Yeah. And then people who listened to more gothy type music you could see on site, you know? Yeah. It, it was, it, music, the more music played a role in your life, I think, the more it affected your fashion. I don't know if mm -hmm. it was that way for you. Were you? It absolutely was. And that's, that's a thing that um, I can't get used to now, today, is that young people do not express themselves through fashion. You know, like kids... Through fashion or through music? Through fashion. Okay. They, they, don't, they don't dress who they are because they don't need to because they have a, you know, an internet presence. Hmm. Kid, kids wear, like, you know, stuff from H&M. They just don't care, you know? Hmm. Um, or you, what you'll see is, is because... Um, like so many of the counterculture looks like goth or punk have been appropriated by designers you'll you'll see some kid who has like a mohawk and a ring through his nose who's not a punk rocker it's very irritating to me huh. <laughs> this is a complete aside but have you ever i know that there's a lot of i don't even know the name of the stores but you can buy a misfits shirt at oh. a mall yeah um and not know who the misfits are have you run into anybody with a white zombie shirt who doesn't know white zombie i have yeah okay yeah <laughs> and and you go up and ask him or no you know well we were talking about like not um being you know introverted and and uh, traveling and everything uh -huh. i had an experience uh two years ago um i was in poland i was getting my hair cut and i went i usually look for like the hipster rocker um barber and in, i found in this any given city. in any given city mm -hmm. and i found this place some guy from some big polish metal band um had a barber shop and i went in there and this girl cut my hair and she was wearing leopard skin pants and she had like a tiger bone hanging from her ear and she had a Ramones t-shirt and she couldn't speak a word of English, which is unusual for a young European person, but not a word like the other barber had to translate. And I was looking at her Ramones shirt and I was thinking like, what would she think if I told her that not only did I know them, but they actually opened from my band? And I was, I was thinking, like, man, would if she spoke good English, would I have the guts to bring that up? Because she'd think I was, I mean, it would be a difficult conversation. She'd be like, fuck you, you're full of shit. What are you, why are you doing that? Are you hitting on me? What's wrong with you? Right. And I left the barbershop, and I was uh, walking down the street, and I was still thinking about, like, about that question. I saw two hip hipster girls who were, like, 13, and one of them had a white zombie shirt on. Okay. And I was like, oh my, what's happening? What, you know, is this like a message from the universe? You <laughs> Sounds know? like it. Um, but yeah, I see, because um, young people are, are, you know, now it's not the 80s, it's the 90s, you know. 
which kind of feels like the last of what young people are embracing like very like young teenagers what they're really into you know you see the only t-shirts i really see anymore like band t-shirts like on the street are guns and roses and nirvana and the ramones hmm. um and you see, you know, girls wearing like the really terrible pants, you now, know, like the mom you pants. you on the street. You live in Madrid. You live yeah. on the street in Madrid? And on the street in Madrid, um, on the street traveling uh, in Europe, on the street when I, I visit America. Okay. You know, every, okay. every, I mean, it's, every, it's very much the same everywhere. Okay. You know, and the internet has made it to where trends actually hold on longer for some, like, like fashion trends, mm -hmm. you know, but... Um, when I see somebody in a white, white zombie t-shirt, it's always a, like a young teenager. And I mean, I, you know, I don't know if, if they know what it is. I'm pretty sure that 99% of the people I see in a Ramon's shirts have no idea what it is they're wearing, you know? Okay, 99%? I, I think so. Wow. Yeah, I, well, you just look at people. You're like, do you like rock music? No, you don't, you know? So, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't want to make rock sound too dated, but it's almost as if... Like a kid in the '70s wearing a zoot suit, or like somehow. That's exactly what it's like. Yeah. You know. Um. <laughs> but it's like a, a throwback to a fashion. Like I know T-shirts are a pretty '70s thing. You know, like yeah. people didn't just walk around. Maybe they had white T-shirts in the '50s and '60s, but T-shirts with band names on them are a '70s Very thing. Very '70s thing. Um, and maybe up through the 90s. So that it's weird. Like, I, there's an extent to which we're going to sound like old men nattering and we're already sitting on a park bench. I think it, about it all the time. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> I, th I think about, you know, authenticity and how you are not supposed to like young people's music when you're older. Yeah. And, and then, you know, my reaction is like, what is this garbage? And then I think about my father when he was like, what is this garbage? When I listened to the Ramones, you know. Okay, right. So, uh think about it constantly the cycle of life ladies and gentlemen yeah um yeah it's it's uh i guess i guess it's inevitable to a certain extent um so actually let's go back to your teenage years mm -hmm. so you were very vested in, in rock you know i was too and we've talked about this a little bit too but it, it was it was more happenstance you know mm -hmm. that i was not a musician itself i was not sophisticated enough i think to be even aware of hardcore mm -hmm. and so when, when did you turn you weren't that old when you started playing with White Zombie. So how did you go from being a hardcore kid who was trying to figure out the DIY thing mm -hmm. to this person delivering pizzas in New York and, <laughs> and eventually somehow being a part of White Zombie? Uh, I moved, well, so, you know, New York City, uh, the iconic American city, and certainly when I was growing up, my even my earliest memories are of, like, Sesame Street. That's New York City. That's totally And New then York city, comic yeah. books, you know, if you look... Um, on the bottom of the first page of a Marvel or DC comic book and you see where they're made, it's New York City. Mm -hmm. um, then after that it was music and most of the American music that I liked came from New York. So I always thought like, well, the place where people do the stuff is New York City. I always had it in my mind that I would go there someday. Um, and so uh, after, after high school I moved there to try to be in a band and, and failed miserably for a couple of years. By yourself? Uh, well, I moved in with some friends of mine from mm -hmm. high school, and it, it, you know, I'd never lived, you know, I was moving out of my parents' house. Um, I was a very, very, very bad roommate. Were you 18? Um, uh, yeah, I was 19. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, which, which is funny that, you know, nowadays people um, are, are forced to stay home uh, for longer, because at that time that felt old to be moving out, you know. Okay. Huh. Things have changed quite a bit. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so young people out there, this is sort of your historical reference episode. It is, it is less normal. Yeah, people live at home longer. I mean, people said the same thing in the 90s, but I think even more so, that it's, yeah. it's just less strange to stay at home. Mm-hmm. So were you living in a squat? Were you, oh, of course, New York wasn't ex- as expensive then as it is now. I'm it sure. was becoming very expensive. Uh-huh. Um, no, I, well, I, I lived in a succession of, of uh, apartments that I could barely afford to pay like a third or a fourth of. And then um, I actually, uh, a, a relative who lived in New Jersey saved my ass and, and let me move in with her hmm. for a year. And so I just commuted to work uh, every day from New Jersey. Just took the bus in, took the bus back, had a very, very bland life, didn't know anybody. Very difficult to meet people there. Hmm. Um, you know, when, going to see bands was my, my only outlet. And then um, I got this crazy phone call out of the blue. Um, from White Zombie, who'd gotten my number from somebody, because um, they desperately needed a guitar player. And my, my very first White Zombie story is that the first day, when I moved to New York, um, the next day, my first full day in New York, I went, they used to, you know, CBGB's, the mm-hmm. legendary club, so they used to have a record store there, and I went into the CBGB's record canteen, and the very first thing I saw was a White Zombie record on the wall, and I had never heard of them. And I, this thing like shouted to me from across the room, and I, I went and I grabbed it. I was like, I don't care what this band sounds like. I'm buying this. This is like everything I want out of life, you know? Because it had like hair and flames and things glittery, and it was like that was right. that's what everything was about at that time. Was it know? still that sort of horror movie comic book aesthetic? Yeah, like the visual aesthetic. Yeah, very much so. But then you know, with a very gritty, you know, they they looked. They, they had this, um, you know, yeah, horror movie, comic book aesthetic, but at the same time they kind of looked like um, punk rockers from the streets of the Lower East Side. But then everything was sparkly, and there were flames and hot rods also. It was all, uh, everything that I liked was um, mixed together in, okay. in a really appealing way. I was like, okay, this, this is a cool band. And then did you um, see them live? Um, uh, yeah, I did. And they were completely different from what I was expecting. They, were, okay. they had this really... Uh, Glamorous, um, uh, chaotic, noisy sound. It's, and if you listen to earlier White Zombie records, they sound really crazy. Yeah. You know, sort of more of a noise. Rock yeah, very noisy. Thing. Yeah. Which was what was going on in New York at the time. Also, there were a lot of like very aggressive noise bands. Mm-hmm. You know, like do you remember like the Swans? You know, only by name. Extremely brutal, noisy music. Mm-hmm. You know, in a way that was completely different from like metal. Is it tuneful or? So, some of it, like, some of it is slightly tuneful. Okay. <laughs> but and so, how did they know you? I mean, you, you. It sounds like you had a fairly isolated life. I was completely isolated. Yeah. Um, the the guy that I moved in with uh, worked at um, Forbidden Planet, the famous um, science fiction comic book, book store. store. Yeah. And they were in there. They're buying something. Robin Shauna. And he said, oh, hey, how's it going? And they said, oh, terrible, we can't find a guitar player. And he said, well, I know a guy. And they gave him my number. And so when they, you know, when they called me, I was like, ugh. Because, you know, I kind of admired them from afar mm-hmm. for a while. You well, know? Had you been playing in bands in the meantime? Or no. Or just practicing on your own? I hadn't really been. I, I, just, I was kind of like, wow, this is, this is really, really difficult. I wasn't, I wasn't that interested in playing. The guitar was under the bed a lot. And so, you know, the second they called me, I was like, oh, Jesus, I'm going to be have, I'm going to have to play all day, every day now, which is what I did, you know, and I, I'm lucky that I was very young and I didn't have a life huh. um, and I could, I could put all of that energy. I remember not sleeping very much during that period. I just played guitar. 
I was like, I'm going to make this happen. It was, it was like the first time in my life I ever wanted something that much. I was like, oh, I'm doing that. I'm not going to fail here. It's the first time I ever said something like that to myself. Because huh. I was a very slovenly teenager, you know. Why did they choose you? I, I think I was, I was the number that they got. Okay. okay. <laughs> they were desperate. There was a show. Um, and they weren't super big yet. They were still no. pretty local, right? Yeah. I mean, people... They had the really good image, and they, the music was interesting. So people around the country knew who they were, but they were, they were signed, they were signed to a like an indie label that was, uh, subs- who weren't really an indie label. They were a subsidiary of a major, so they had some distribution. But they had a new record coming out in three weeks, and they had a, a record release show, and they had nobody to play guitar, and so they were like, okay, can we get along with this guy? Great. You know, I, I think they probably, I think they decided before I ever played a note, they're like, okay, this guy, fine, good, you know. Well, the entire city of New York, and they get the kid who's over in Jersey. Isn't that weird? Jersey. Yeah. yeah. Well, lucky you, you don't, you yeah. owe that guy a drink, you know, the, the yeah, guy who recommended yeah, you. Yeah, I do. Now, um, if I understand it correctly, you sort of changed the sound of White Zombie. Yeah, I that, did. That it was, that maybe the reason we know White Zombie is because you added a, a layer that made it, um more susceptible to a broader audience, more listenable, more <laughs> susceptible in, in, into the uh, metal tradition, you know? I did, but I also joined at a time when they, they were consciously making a change. They okay. wanted to be a metal band. That was, that was what was going to happen. They wanted to, you know, not have a, have a normal standard sound, but they wanted to um, fit into that world more. Right. You know what I mean? Susceptible, and, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but so, you know, you, you have this band who's playing at CBGB's and, and like, you know, with like Pussy Galore and, and the reverb motherfuckers and, and you know, whatever. Um, and like within a year, we're opening for Slayer in Long Island, you know, like, like we made that change and it's, it looks crazy to me now. I'm like, did we, did we actually go in front of suburban metal audiences? Being these kind of like, you know, effete kids from from New York City. Wow, we did that. I mean, it's kind of crazy. Like we would. Um, There's a very famous metal club called Lemoore's, which was, I believe, it was in Bensonhurst. I think, like far, mm. like like you know, deep deep Brooklyn, deep white Brooklyn. Yeah. And we would go out there, and we would open for like you know, like we played with like the Chromags and Suicidal mm. Tendencies. Right. Like we were in the like crossover metal punk world at that point. And and not doing too badly. I remember the first the first show like that was uh, well we we opened for Danzig, and that was a big wake up because they were great. Like I don't know if you ever got to see them, but the original never, Danzig never saw them. No. Man, they were good. What a tremendous live band! Holy shit, um, that that kind of put a big fire under me. Like I'm I've got to, if we're playing with bands like this, I have to be better, you know. But then we played with Slayer, and Slayer made us. We had our little homemade t-shirts that our friend screened for us, which we used to sell for like $10, and their shirts were 20 and they made us match their shirt price, which we were like, okay, that's, we're not selling any merch. And we sold like 10 t-shirts at that mm-hmm. show, and that felt like this victory, like, wow, like, regular-ass people from Long Island are buying expensive t-shirts of our band. That's okay, that's, that's encouraging, mm-hmm. you know? There's always, something encouraging was always happening, although I will say that we were the least likely to succeed out of all of the bands. Um, it was always getting a little bit better. Is this pre-Sex Resisto? Yeah. Okay. This is pre-getting signed to Geffen, pre-making okay. Sex Resisto, gotcha. yeah. Um, and, I, it, and it sounds like you're already straddling that territory. I know that one distinctive thing about White Zombie is that they were on Headbangers Ball 
which is the metal show of MTV, but also on 120 Minutes. I believe we were the first band to be on both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were there others that were that were on both? After us, I think. I think you know, Helmet was. I think. Okay. But um, but that that sounds yeah. significant because those I remember those being two different crowds of people. Very you know, in, separate in that, at that time. In that music youth culture, when music was so seemingly so much more important it is to young people than it is mm-hmm. now, that that seems like a feat. But yet it seems like. Cro-Mags and, and, you know, show on one side and Slayer on the other side and you're moving toward uh, a distillation of sound, a new sound. Yeah. And, well, I mean, that seemed, you know, we were all deeply into music and, and we, we were born at a really great time where we, all this great stuff that happened in the, the 80s and the 90s just happened right in front of us. And so, you know, we, we would think like, well, we, we, we still like Black Flag and we like the Butthole Surfers and we like Slayer and we like the Cramps. Why would we not want to be a band that has all of that in it? Why, and, and, you know, that seems normal now, but at the time it was very strange and uh, people really didn't know what to make of us. I mean, the, the story that I hear from people who are old enough to have been exposed to us for the first time around Los Exorcisto was like, well, that was new. I didn't know what to make of that at first, which is, you know. I remember other bands around the time, like Faith No More and, and mm-hmm. some other bands. Well, that's that, a good example of a genre crossing group. Yeah. You know? that, and in a way, that was part of the appeal, um, mm-hmm. that this wasn't just a single category band, that they were, they were doing unusual things. Mm-hmm. And so, sort of to loop in some travel things, were you touring at this point? Like pre-sex orcisto? Yeah. Um, did so uh, a couple months after I joined the band, I did my first tour of America, summer of '89. Um, first time I had been to Texas. First time I'd had grits. You know, okay. first time I saw the Grand Canyon. Like a lot, a lot of firsts on that one. Um, sleeping on people's floors, meeting lots of people everywhere, uh, and then that winter, we did a really, really, really rough tour of Europe. Um, and, and define rough. Like, what were some examples of, of the roughness um, of the tour? I slept on the floor of an old slaughterhouse that still had hooks in the ceiling. Um, we were in the worst storm in the English Channel. Last boat let go. Um, boat didn't have stabilizers. Um, you know, I don't even know. Like, it felt like we were on like hundred foot waves the entire time, just like you know, rolling on the floor, throwing up. And then we got to England, and there were jackknife trucks everywhere and uprooted trees. Um, that was one thing. Um, the um, somebody didn't pay protection money to the mafia in Rome, so that show got canceled. So we ended up playing a squatted uh, World War II aircraft factory um, in outside of Florence, I think in front of like 4,000 kids of the Communist Youth League. Um, huh. And this was January and like all the windows were smashed out so it was freezing. You know? right. So we ate the like vegan stew and went on stage and tried to warm up. You know? <laughs> um, those were a few things. You know, it, it's... Was it, was it fun? I mean, do you, do you miss that? I mean, it sounds like great stories. What could be more white zombie than pl- sleeping in a slaughterhouse full of books, <laughs> right? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, it was... Uh, I don't know. There wasn't a lot of fun going on then i mean we, there was there was a, a lot of there were a lot of gratifying moments mm-hmm. we were all very very driven and it was it was almost like a military environment you know and it was everybody had that kind of thing of like well i'm not going to be the one to let the team down you know what i mean um so was it collective or was like rob or somebody sort of driving the 
That was collective, right. and yeah. that's why they let me be in the band because I was like, yes, I will be like that. Okay. And oh. whatever you tell me, you know. At first, I was like, well, you know, how how high do you want me to jump? That's what I will do. Right. You know, and I, I developed a mind of my own pretty quickly, but you know, I I did have that thing, of like. I have six dollars, that's all I have. I can buy food or I can buy guitar strings. Of course, every time I will buy guitar strings. Like, that's, that's why they let me be in the band. You yeah. Know? yeah. Um, that's who they needed, because they hadn't had that before. Um, but, you know, thinking about um, how we capture every moment and we record everything, that tour, like, I was, I was talking to Shauna about that tour, and we kept on thinking of more horrible things about it. And I realized, Shana like, being, if, the, bass being the bass player. Yeah. If we had all had cameras, like, you know, camera phones, there would probably, we could make a book about just that tour, and it would probably be a very entertaining book. About you know the Europe I mean? tour. Yeah. yeah. We, um, the way they would do it is they, uh, they would assign you a tour manager, like the small DIY um, booking agency. They would assign you, like, a guy, and you would stay at his place on the days off, and then he would drive you around Europe. And we got this guy who was, like, the biggest asshole I'd ever met, like, hated Americans. You know, and which, um, which country is this? This is Holland. Okay. We uh, when we weren't uh, going to or coming back from a country, we were sleeping in his housing project apartment in Daventer, which is a suburb of Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. um, what a fucking asshole this guy was! They actually fired him afterwards because we we told them exactly how mean he had been to us and how difficult he hated everybody. Like he would. You know, he would belittle, like, you know, we were in, in uh, Italy and he would belittle the Italians. Like, well, okay. I'm from Holland. We are not stupid like you. I'm like, are you saying that to these people? Huh. Jesus. You know, so that was, that was rough. <laughs> God, and, and so how was he mean to the band? Um, you know, you Americans don't understand anything. Oh, you, that was a terrible show. Okay. You know, like, God. well, you got to remember, too, at this time, Reagan was still president. Yeah. And so I took a lot of abuse from... A lot of people on that tour for being American and you know it's like oh well, you Americans do this I'm like I'm a kid in a band like I uh, guitars are what I want to talk about you know like I'm you know it's like I know what's happening and I I'm not a fan of Reagan if you think I voted for him you're an idiot but why are we talking about politics right you know and I didn't White realize Zombie is not a political band exactly and I didn't realize that you know this is well actually uh, another very interesting thing about that tour was that that was you remember when the Berlin Wall came down? Mm -hmm. That was um, the winter of 89-90. That's when we were in Berlin. I was actually there when the first East Germans were streaming through the wall, just by chance, you uh -huh. know? But, so I didn't really, I was obviously aware of the Cold War. We were talking about this. We, had, we both had to register for the draft, which seems kind of spooky now, you know? Mm -hmm. But um, I didn't realize the, the uh, extent to which politics was driving everything, even the music scene in Europe. I didn't, I didn't have any clue, you know? I was very sheltered. So, I mean, maybe they were right to, you know, yell at me, because I, I didn't understand the way they were living. Right. You know, maybe, I don't know. I recently read Henry Rollins' Get in the Van. Oh, yeah. Have you read that book? Yeah, I have earlier era, but, but also Reagan era, and, and similarly got some anti-American sentiment, mm -hmm. you know, because of that. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of UK punk was political, too. Yeah, it whereas, was. Whereas hardcore was less likely to be directly political. Yeah. Hard, hardcore was all about personal politics. Yeah. You know, I mean, like you were, you were talking about, like, Ian Mackay, and, and all of his songs were about, like, well, this is what it's like in the hallways of my high school. Whereas, yeah, like an English punk band would be like, you know, Thatcher and Nukes, you know, yeah. Right, yeah. Exactly. Um, I liked both, but you know. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, I think a lot, yeah, a lot of people who listen, nobody is completely in one silo as a music listener. Yeah. You know? Maybe unless it's the person who's wearing the, the full goth costume and, and doesn't have diversity in their, <laughs> in their record collection. Um, but I know that we talked before, and by the way, uh, listeners, we're, there's a lot of school groups walking through the Jardin de Plante, so it must be like field trip day mm-hmm. for French schools. It's July. I don't know if they go to school in, in the summer or not, but... It's probably um, daycare. Okay, yeah. Those are you know, they, they have that here. That's true. They, <laughs> they have some public money for daycare. It's, it's very cute. We're surrounded by cuteness here. Um, you mentioned at some point that touring got less interesting, maybe more comfortable, but less mm-hmm. interesting. So why don't you take us through that process? It, was that after Sex Resisto and, yeah. and was the success of that album? So yeah, for the first like year, I think, we were in a van. And we were in a succession of, after Los Exorcistas, uh-huh. and we were in a succession of nicer vans, so that was very nice. And, and we started to get you know, our own hotel rooms, which is very nice. Even if it was in a Motel 6, it's your own space. It's amazing right. when you're living on top of each other 24 hours a day. Uh, and, and, and so is yeah. this as that album is getting MTV play and, and like slowly becoming... It's, it's as the, we're on um, Headbanger's Ball. Okay. You know, so pre-big success, but you've got to remember too that that at that time, if you sold a quarter of a million records, that was considered like, well, you did all right. We'll let you make another one. That wasn't considered a big success. Like now, that would be incredible. One, but yeah, one. but so we were doing what you know by our standards now, we're doing a lot of business. Um, but the the big breakout hadn't happened yet. Um, got our first tour, you know, a really junky tour bus, then a nicer tour bus. And when, you know, when you move up to a bus, this is a huge leap. You know, like you can sleep on the bus. You can, um, you know, you don't have to be conscious while you're going, you're driving like 18 hours to Denver. It's incredible. Uh, but then when you start playing, um, you move up out of the old theaters and you start playing like, like sports arenas, you are in a bus and with a with a like plush disco interior you pull into the back part of the arena you are in dressing rooms you play the show and then you are back on the bus uh it's i mean you meet fans but that's the the, those are the only people you're meeting um and and you're you're typically in a very very bland environment you know what i mean um it, it gets a lot more boring i mean yeah it's your life gets much easier, but it gets it gets really boring. Again, this is before we had devices, so you're you're on the bus watching like you have the same five VHS tapes that you might trade with the other bands on the tour, you know. Mm-hmm. But you're watching Three Amigos over and over and over <laughs> again, you know, or you're or you're reading paperbacks that you bought at a truck stop. Uh-huh. Or we did projects. I mean. People always ask me, like, well, where'd you get all those clothes? I'm like, where did I get them? I made them on the tour bus. That's what I did to pass the time. Like, I sewed, no you know, yeah. Huh. Um, so it's, it is different now. I know that today, like, uh, bands and tour, they're just constantly trading TV shows with each other, and everybody's, like, updating their Instagram and everything. So it's a little... And nobody ever gets lost, which is a big part of it. Ah. Um, huh. So it is very different now. But I'm sure it's still very bland once once you become successful, unless you try really hard to have it not be bland. You know. Which did you prefer, comfort and blandness, or uh, slaughterhouse hooks and discomfort? Well, I mean, at the time, the the blandness was great. I mean, I was, I, you know, I had literally starved to be in this band, 
and I'd been, you know, pretty much homeless. I mean, I, I spent a lot of nights sleeping on the drum riser in the rehearsal room um, or on somebody's floor. So at the time, I was like, yeah, bring on the blandness. But of course now, all of my most interesting memories uh, are from the van tours. And then also once, you know, th and this is like whenever, you, you, you know, you've seen like behind the music. And yeah. Like, and so it's always the point like, like then we got successful and that's when money started driving people apart. You know what I mean? It's every single band has that story. People become isolated from each other. So my fondest memories are back when we were, we were really pulling together for something um, and not in our separate worlds. I mean, and you know, you talk about um, touring, like traveling, uh, going to, like I got to go to Brazil. We played this rock festival in front of like 80,000 people and I don't have any good memories from that because you know, nobody in the band was talking to each other. I was off in my room like making little songs on my four track like I, I would have done in you know, Iowa. You know, I, I went out by myself a little bit and did some sightseeing but it wasn't fun because I was by myself, you know what I mean? And it's, it feels weird when you're on tour that you're not used to being by yourself. You know? So that was, I, I have no, I, I need to go back to Brazil because I have no good memories of it at all. Huh. And all the other bands hated each other too. That was interesting. I watched um, uh, Billy Corgan and um, what's her face, the bass player, the crazy Darcy, one, Darcy, Darcy have, have like like actually like like have a fist fight backstage, like like in punch person. each other in the face. Yeah. Wow. God. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. She said some really stupid shit on stage though. Okay. <laughs> Goodness. Yeah. I mean, nobody was having a good time. We're in Brazil. What year was you know? this? Shit, like 2000, middle to. Um, I mean, not sorry, not uh, middle 90s, um, okay. like 96, I can't remember exactly, 96, okay. something like that. I saw Smashing Pumpkins on my 23rd birthday mm -hmm. in La Luna in Portland. I never, oh, wow. I never saw a white zombie live, but um, yeah, and I, I guess that's sort of the pantheon of 90s music, you know, mm -hmm. that you were, you were right there, a part of all of that, mm -hmm. you know, which is sort of my coming of age music. And I want to get back to the travel thing because I think it's interesting, the evolution of your travel and, mm -hmm. and, and how you've seen it. But how did the success, you know, suddenly you're, one, you're, you're using your money to buy guitar strings instead of food, and then mm -hmm. suddenly White Zombie is selling literally millions of albums. Did that change mm -hmm. the way you were received? I mean, did that, did that mean you're being recognized and asked for autographs and being able to invest in real estate. I mean, was there a, a, a sea change all of a sudden? Yeah, um, the, life didn't really change until we broke up. But uh, yeah, for a couple of years there, I couldn't really go, you know, I, I wouldn't say I was like famous, like how, you know, I don't know, somebody who's in a movie is famous. But there was, there was a while when I couldn't really go anywhere where young people were without having to sign stuff. Um, you know, certainly uh, days off, on tour you were a target because everybody in the whole town knew that where you were you know what I mean okay. so you did I, the I, town in question being the wherever you were oh, playing the, the next day okay, you know right. um, and you had dreadlocks and a yeah distinguished distinguished we were very uh, look. Yeah. yeah so we were we were easy to, you know like you you have to go to the mall because that's where you got socks you right. know and right. so then you know the kids would see you and then you would have this entourage of like 50 kids like 10 feet behind you and you're right. like I'm, I don't want to buy socks in front of these kids. That's such a normal thing. I need socks, though. You right. know. What if you could deputize the kids? Like, sure, yeah. I'll sign your autograph. Here's five bucks. Give me some socks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's funny that now it's it's all these years later. It's mm -hmm. almost 20 years later. Um, mm -hmm. You're sitting in the park. You have some some tattoos, but you look like 
sort of the affable Midwestern guy you are, you know. Yeah, well, that, that's that's by design too because um, it makes traveling easier. Okay. You know, I um, around the time that I moved to Spain, I, I made a conscious decision to like I had a really big beard and I had long hair. I, I looked like a, a guy who was in that heavy metal world somehow. You know, and um, during I, your New Orleans days. Yeah, mm -hmm. and a couple of years ago, I kept on having these experiences where I was like, Jesus Christ! Like, I, I, all I want to do is like get through security at the airport easily, you know. Um, and so I, I made a decision to uh, tone it down a lot. You know what I mean? And did they did they think you were carrying drugs, or did they want to talk to you because maybe you were famous, or why, why was you? Why well, you slowing, I'll, I'll slowing give you down. an example. Like uh, the. the the first time I went back to America after I, uh, so this is almost three years ago after I moved to Spain, um, I was uh, in the security line and this, this woman, she was like in her 60s, she, I looked up and it looked like she was filming me with her phone and I was like, is she, what? And so I like ducked behind a pillar and she was like, oh no, you don't, I got you in my sights, terrorist. And so oh. she like ducked around and like was filming me more. And so like the punk in me was like, I'm gonna fuck with this lady. I'm gonna take out my, my phone and film her. And then in that instant, because you know, you know how stressful and serious things are when you travel now, I realized that she was gonna tell somebody and I would, you know, I would be in the room. You'd be detained. Yeah, you know, I would be detained. I wouldn't make my flight. Right. You know, and, and I was like, I can't eat that. This is like, I don't wanna live like this anymore. She thought you were a terrorist because you were bearded? Yeah. Well, that's typical. Ask anybody who has a big, any dude okay. who has a big beard, you know, that's that's a typical thing. You, you always look up and some cop is, like, scoping you. you okay. Know. Huh. Goodness. Um, yeah. That was, and, and, you know, like, I had another experience around that time where I, I ate at a restaurant by myself. And then after I paid the bill, I was going in my backpack. And I, I just got this weird feeling and I looked up. And every single person in the restaurant was staring at me. And I was like, what? Oh, they're, they're waiting to see if I'm going to go for a gun. What the, you know? It's just, it's, I, I kept on having this experience. This? this is in New Orleans. Okay. You know? Okay. Um, I kept on having experiences like this. I was like, I'm going to be more muted in the way I look. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so rewinding a little bit. Okay. So, so um, White Zombie broke up in the late 90s. Is that right? Yeah, 97. Like yeah. And was that uh, was that crushing for you, or was it disappointing, or was it did it seem like the right thing? How how did you take that? It was disappointing, and it was also a relief because um, we burned ourselves out. Nobody ever told us like, well, you know, you can take a week off. Like, you don't have to just, you know, how bands will they'll go out for two weeks and they'll go home for a week. Um, nobody ever told us that we could do that, and we were we were so you know driven by this duty. You know, when you get big, that's the other thing is that they start to work you really hard. They're like, oh, money machine, let's do this. You know, like, oh, you you want to have a life? Well, that's very selfish of you. You know what I mean? It's that's the way it gets. Right. Um, you hear this all the time from people who have become successful in the entertainment business. Um, so we had definitely burned ourselves out. I was disappointed because I felt like we had another album in us. But the way things were going with the relationships in the band, there is no way we can move forward, you know. And then Rob went and did a solo record, and he did this kind of like pale imitation of a, a White Zombie song, and it was successful enough, you know. It was sort of electronica-ish. Yeah, well, right? that was his that was his deal. He he decided during the making of Astro Creep that he didn't like guitars <laughs> or drums. 
And I'm like, but that's what the band is. So again, it was huh. like, you know, it was like trying to bottle smoke or something, like writing songs with somebody who doesn't want there to be any of the sound of the band in the sound of the band. He's like, no, we'll just add, we'll just fill it up with loops and keyboards. I'm like, that's new wave music. That's not what we're doing here. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't want to make dance music. And he didn't see a problem with it. So he kind of, he went and did his thing, which was, uh, you know, it's it's like a fourth of what the equation had been. You right. Know? So whatever. So at, at that point, yeah, I was, I was very ready to experiment with being a normal person. Uh -huh. Trying to, you know, it didn't work out that well. <laughs> and so, what what were those? I know at some point you ended up in New Orleans. Did you immediately head for New Orleans? Did you no? I try I, to start another band. What happened? I in the stayed middle? in L.A., bought a house, got married, had dogs. Um, I was I was very bored, but I kept on feeling like this is what I'm supposed to be doing at this point in my life. Um, it got divorced, and that's when because I had been going to Shauna bought a house in New Orleans very early like in a neighborhood that was extremely dangerous at the time. Which and, neighborhood? Um, the um, Lower Garden District, okay. which is now very, very fancy. Her house is worth a little more than she paid for it, I think. Um, and so I had been going to visit her there uh, quite a bit, quite often. And, and I always felt like, well, this is, you know, my, my favorite place in America. You know what I mean? So it just, I, I, well, I went down to record her band. I just, I, I uh, loaded up a truck with a bunch of gear. I went and set up in her living room and I stayed there for a couple of weeks and I had one of those magic experiences where, uh, um, you know, every day it's like, well, this guy's having a crawfish boil, then these bands are playing in this backyard and then we're going to this part. You know, it was just, it was like a charmed trip. I think and a lot so, of people have that New Orleans yeah. moment where they realize it's yeah. just a really singular place. Yeah. Um, so then everybody's, and, and I knew a lot of people there by that point, so then everybody said, oh, well, if you like this, you should come from Mardi Gras. And of course, you know, so I did that, I rented a house for a month, and of course during Mardi Gras everybody does mushrooms, and okay. you know, so you're having these experiences, and, and people who don't, who would never touch drugs, take whatever they can get their hands on during Mardi Gras. So it's, it's fun, it's, it's uh, mentally taxing a lot of times, but I, I had one of these experiences where I was, I was peeking on mushrooms, and I got swept up in a, in a parade, uh, crew of St. Anne, and we went to the Mississippi and they like sang down by the riverside and, and dipped the flags in the river. And I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm like peeking at that exact moment. I'm like, I'm going to live here, you know, <laughs> which is, I think a lot of people, like you said, a lot of people have that experience. It's like, yeah. oh, when are you going to go get your stuff? You yeah. clearly live here already in your mind. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, that wasn't a hard choice to make. So, mm. um... How did your, obviously you've become a pretty prolific traveler yeah. after having been uncertain. So how did you go about doing that and where have you been and where do you want to go? Wow. Um, well, I think the, the, the big thing that, that uh, changed it for me was I, I was like, I want to go bumming around Southeast Asia like all these assholes do, you know. And I finally did it and I did it open-ended and I did that thing where I wasn't sure where I was going to go next, and then the backpacker kids in the bus in Laos were like, "Well, you should go to Myanmar. That would be interesting." I'm like, "Oh, I could just do that." You know, it was it was amazing. So I think I think I just had to be out there for a while. What year was this? Um, I, uh, I think 2013. Okay. Something like that. So that's that's really when it changed. One of the reasons I wanted to move to Europe is the the standard map, the standard Eurocentric map that we use every day. You know, if you look at that map, the center of that map is Spain. 
Okay. So I, f I feel, you know, I, in a way I feel like I moved to the world and now that I'm in the world I can travel. New Orleans was shit for travel because it's so isolated. It's like no matter where you go, unless you're going to Orlando or Las Vegas, you have to transfer somewhere. You know, right. you, have to, you have to change in like Houston, you know. It was really tiresome and it, it made it, that was another thing that made it difficult to um, get in the, the mode to travel, you know, was that I just, I, it, it was so difficult to get out of there, you know. It's, it's like when, when, you know, people make fun of Americans or, or kind of, you know, say that it's shameful that Americans don't have passports so they don't travel much. It's like, well, it's, it's hard and it's really far away from everything and it's really fucking expensive and America has all the stuff in it. America has mountains and beaches and deserts and rainforests. It has all the stuff. You know, it's, it's like, you could, there are a lot of amazing American trips you can take that are, and you can go to places like New Orleans or New Mexico that, are, you know, are pretty exotic for America, you know, and San Francisco is very different oh, kind yeah. of city, Olympic you know. Olympic Peninsula, Washington, mm -hmm. temperate rainforest. Yeah. Um, I've said that, and you know, my first vagabonding trip was, was eight months in North America. I went to Canada for a few days. Mm -hmm. Road tripping? Yep, living in a van. See, I, it's, it's one of the greatest privileges of being an American citizen is the road trip. I think it's one of the most excellent things that exists. Yeah. You know? Oh, to this day, um, I, I love a road trip. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you ended up in Senegal, is that right? Uh -huh. Why did you go there? Because the neighborhood, well, the, the first thing, the very first thing that sparked it was, um, so you know how um, kids in classrooms now, they just have like iPads? Like, sure. There, there aren't like maps on the wall or anything. And yeah. you remember the, the really great pull down maps? I have one mm -hmm. in my house. Yeah. A, a high school teacher friend gave it to me, and so my, my curtain is a, Sweet. Is a, is a world map. I, uh, I was, uh, so I live very near an area called the Rastro, which is um, a lot of people selling old stuff and antique shops. And this one place got a shipment of beautiful, beautiful maps from the early 60s from Holland. And I bought the Africa one. It's gigantic. You know, it's like eight feet tall. And nice. I've got it on the wall of my living room. And every morning when I walk in the living room, I just stand there and look at Africa for a while. And so I started getting really obsessed. I'm like, I've got to go someplace in Africa. And you know, Spain is just sitting there right on the top of Africa. So Africa's like taunting me, you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, in my neighborhood where I live is, is an area called Lava Pies, which is extremely multicultural. Um, and the Afri there are people from, I, they say there are people from 90 countries in the neighborhood, might be true. Um, a lot of Africans, a lot of people from Senegal so I started, you know, seeing these people all the time, eating in their restaurants, thinking about Senegal. So then I'd st I started studying Africa, kind of making spreadsheets for myself, like, well, which places can you clearly not go? Like, okay, you know, Sierra Leone, you're not going there right now, you know? Mm -hmm. Angola, you're probably not going there right now, you know? You could, but it would probably be a nightmare. Um, what are the safest places? Oh, well, Senegal. And, and where were you getting the data for this? Were you just looking at um, State Department warnings yeah, and cross reports? Yeah, State Department and mm -hmm. Wikipedia. And, you know, asking myself specific questions, has there been a coup d'etat, is homosexuality illegal? That's like a big marker for me of, of huh. like how progressive, how, how basically decent a country is. Interesting. Um, you know, um, which countries have the best music? Senegal is one of those. Which country has not had a coup d'etat? Senegal. Um, which country is relatively peaceful Senegal which country has really awesome really unique food Senegal all, all the boxes were ticked for Senegal mm -hmm. and it's not that far from Spain so um, yeah so I went 
Nice. Very, very cool. Very interesting country. It's it's the Muslim country I've been to that is the least like judgy okay. of non-Muslims. Mm-hmm. They don't care at all. You yeah. know how sometimes you're in Turkey and you'll get a beer and then the guy who sells you the beer will be like, oh, oh, he's going to drink an alcohol beverage now? Oh. Right. Well, Allah doesn't like. I'm like, you sold me the beer, motherfucker. Right. You know, um, none of that in Senegal. They're cool, very, very easygoing people. Um, you know, still, still completely fucked up. I was like, wow, this is one of the most together places in Africa. Interesting. Everything is broken. Oh yeah. I mean, oh. I know that sounds very like judgy, like American, like you know, white guy, like colonialist of me, but it's it's pretty fucked up there. <laughs> That there are some like infrastructure problems, yeah. plumbing problems, and things like that. Yeah, and like yeah. like not not everything works very well. Um, when I I took a, I actually got a cab driver to drive me across the country because I wanted to go to San Luis, which is the old um, colonial capital. And um, when we were driving through the desert, I saw like eight car wrecks. You know, like stuff's fucked up there. Huh. You know. Have you been to other parts of Sub-Saharan Africa? I have not. Okay. Uh, I'm going this summer for the first time. I'm going to South Africa and Namibia. And I'm very excited about it. You know, yeah. Everybody says Namibia is like the coolest country in the world. So yeah. you just, oh, wow. You think so? Yeah, yeah no, I, I'm very fond of wow. Namibia. Yeah. I mean, cool. that shows up in, uh, in my new book, Souvenir. Cool. Um, and were we going to talk about something from Souvenir? Oh, I was going to tell you how you came at a, an experience I've had, and you came at it from two... Uh, totally different angles, which is it's just interesting that you did this. So you were talking about how you went to the crash bomber and you stole the fuse box. Gotcha. And then like, you know, your friends, you didn't have any context for it, so your friends didn't really care. And then as you became older and more aware, you realized that you stole something from a gravesite and you should put it back, which is what you did. And then you also talked about Auschwitz and how people frequently swipe stuff from Auschwitz. So when I was, uh, I was 18, and my, my father's last uh, foreign posting as, as a reporter was Warsaw. And I went, so this is like deeply communist Poland. Okay. I, w- I went to, uh, I spent a couple of weeks there with them. We went to Krakow and we went to Auschwitz. And um, I think it's probably, you know, much uh, fancier now. There's probably like interactive exhibits and everything's nice or whatever. But at the time it was Auschwitz as it had been. And the exhibits were like the storerooms where they have like the piles of hair and stuff. They just fenced those off and that was the exhibit. There's this barbed wire laying around. So I picked up a piece and I put it in my pocket. And, you know, I was a teenage boy. So I was like, oh, pretty crazy, right? You know, wow, I got this thing. Uh, as, as time has gone on, of, co- of course, I'm, I'm a much more aware and moral human being. I'm like, that was fucked up that you did that. And besides that, what a horrible, horrible thing to have in your fucking house. I can't believe, you know, saying this to myself, I can't believe you live with that every day. What are you doing? So I know that I have to put it back. So it's just, you, you really, that's like a, a central problem for me that you hit huh. at from two different angles. I thought that was interesting that you did that. Huh, so I touched on the Auschwitz thing, but then yeah. also the, the idea of returning something that no longer feels like it belongs to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So and just bringing those ghosts into your house, what are you doing, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Although, you know, my memory of Auschwitz is that I couldn't, it, like, I couldn't feel anything, you know. It's like sometimes you go to places and they're vibey. And right, you're like, yeah. oh, yeah, this is a terrible place. This is, like, I went to the, um, uh, the school prison in, in, in uh, Phnom Penh, Penh yeah. you know. And that's, that's a heavy fucking, like, I needed to, like, get over that for the rest of the day. Like, I had to go to some nice gardens to get over that because that place is full of ghosts well, and it's bad. Well, there's blood stains in there. Yeah, that. it's nasty, yeah. yeah. But Auschwitz is just, you know, it's in a forest. It's nice there. Yeah, um, I haven't been to Auschwitz. 
you know, I, I had a, you know, it's like you're looking at the picture and then you're looking at the place where the picture was taken and you can't connect them in your head. Maybe because it's too monstrous, I don't know. Maybe you can't even grasp it. I don't know what it is. But. Well, this is something, I just wonder, maybe sometimes aura is specific to actual coincidental climactic conditions because I think part of the thing about Tolslang and the other Cambodian genocide memorials is that it's humid mm -hmm. and the air is a little bit fetid and, mm -hmm. and, and tropical and it doesn't feel sanitized at all mm -hmm. and you see these old blood stains on, on the floor of that school where people were tortured yeah. and it just feels real whereas you have a, a cool forest it's not as hot it's you know maybe it's very more pretty there which control. is fucked up yeah you know yeah. And again, I haven't been, so mm. um, so at some point you're going to go back. You're gonna I, back. I have to. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't keep that thing. Yeah. You know. Interesting to think about. Yeah. If also, I, Krakow is awesome, so I'd like to go back to Krakow. What a cool, what a cool town, you know? Yeah. No, I only passed through because I was hitchhiking. Mm. This was 19 years ago. I was hitchhiking through Krakow. Um, when you know, as a writer, I would end up writing about returning the, the barbed wire to uh, to Krakow, which or yeah. to uh, Auschwitz, which makes me wonder about your journal because I know. Uh, I've seen some of your journals on Instagram, and mm -hmm. they have stickers from all the countries. You talked about buying a sticker so that you can add it to your journal here. What goes into the journal, and um, who's it for? I mean, part of it, when, when we're traveling, and we, the way my girlfriend and I travel, we're on the go, and we pack a lot in. So it's very difficult to, to find the time to write stuff down, um, which is also one of the reasons that I'm, I'm starting to kind of fall away from social media. It's like... You know, okay, you're traveling, you're out all day, like like doing all the stuff and eating in all the places that are famous and everything. And then you're also going to have to write everything down in your journal, and you're have to, gonna have to write some postcards to your friends, and you're gonna like look at Facebook. I don't have time for all of that. You know what I mean? I think it's good mm -hmm. to have the wisdom to know that Facebook is the one that can go. Yeah. You know, it's pretty clear. I mean, all Facebook is now is like your friends bitching about like, should I stay on here? What do you think? Right. It's like, and that's like the most Facebook thing you could do is announce like, oh, I'm leaving Facebook on Facebook, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's weird how time consuming that can be and that you're just slicing off these huge chunks of your life for this yeah. make-believe world. And, and I can see how that works at home. But when you're traveling, you know, it, it would be just, it's a shame to think that maybe some younger travelers are actually sinking four hours a day into social media when they're yeah. traveling, you know. Well, even, you know, in my case, because I'm an American who lives in a foreign country, and this, this would look to, you know, my, my life in Madrid, Madrid, as we're talking about this, it's like the New York City of Spain. It's very urban. It's not the Spain that you typically would imagine. Like, there, it's not like bullfights in flamenco in every corner and lots of Mediterranean sunshine. It's not what it's like. It's a city with a, you know, I take the subway every day. It's a city. The metropole. But, yeah. Um, but, um, you know, but I do live in a foreign country, and I just I started to realize recently that it, by having this this social system all around me at all times that hasn't changed from when I lived at home in America, I'm I'm not fully experienced. I'm, I'm I'm certainly not experiencing learning the language the way I would be. I'm not forced. I'm, I'm you know Spain has a, a pretty low level of of English speaking um, diffusion, but. Um, I'm, I'm not really forced to fend for myself that much. Most of what I need to say to people is, is very simple. You know, mm -hmm. Can I have another beer? You know, and everybody knows that. Um, but I do, I do realize that I'm, I'm not in the moment. You know, and it's like, I, you, like, you know, I think about myself like 
Well, if I was a character in a book, who would I want myself to be? I'd, I want to be this like cool guy who lives in a foreign country and travels all the time. It's like, well, you are that, but you're not experiencing that way because you have Facebook with you, and you're listening to all your friends in you know like Wisconsin bitch about how they have to redo their front drive, and like that's that shouldn't be your Spain experience, you yeah. know? I don't care what somebody in Ohio ate for breakfast. I'm in Spain, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that's a that's and that's not really because it was such a. Um, a habit like I had joined at the end of 2008 so it's it's been almost 10 years and it was it was so habitual that I didn't even realize that until like a couple months ago it was like how habitual your Facebook use was yeah and yeah. and how I should be here now you know what I mean um I mean isn't that crazy yeah and it's crazy that it's that it's something we who existed many many years before all this <laughs> have to remind ourselves. You know, yeah. I've written books about, I've written articles about this, but it's still a struggle mm-hmm. uh, to unplug it. And, and and to give that perspective, you know, you were talking about your journals remind you of the awesome things you've done. Like mm-hmm. I, I had some low moments last year, you know, where I had to remind myself, well, I've been in Namibia, you know, I've I've been in Mozambique. I finished a book, you know, that I and I think maybe there's an extent to which all of these distractions of social media lend a discontinuity to want your sense of self. Mm-hmm. And so you do become distracted by all of these sparkly digital things that you forget that three months ago you were sitting in the orange dunes of Namibia having an amazing <laughs> time. Uh, which is a shame because that should be something you can savor forever. And I do, mm-hmm. and I will, but uh, it, it's an ongoing struggle. And in a way, this is, this is something that comes up in my podcast a lot because it's something I think out loud about, mm-hmm. you know, just trying to fine-tune things. How many countries have you been to? 60. Okay. Have, oh, you, have you counted? You, you've been to a lot. I, I sort of try not to count. I, but you, you, you're not supposed to make it a list, but yeah. I can't help it. It's fun. Yeah. I well, love checking them off. I, I love going <laughs> to new countries, too. Yeah. I mean, you know, of course, I love returning to the countries that I love. But yeah. um, I've been to 60, but remember, part of that was for work. Right. You know, like I didn't, I didn't, I, when I was in Australia, I was worried about guitar pedals. I wasn't like looking yeah. at kangaroos or anything, you know. It's almost like another list, you know. Yeah. That, that well, I, I have been going, like I went, um, I recently went to Japan. Um, one of the reasons was that my girlfriend's never been there. And, but the other one was that I'd only been there on tour. So, you know, people think like, you've been to Japan. How exotic, how great. It's like, no, I was working. Yeah. I was, I, and when you're on tour, you know, people don't realize this. You're at work. It's like you're only working an hour a day, but you're at work 24 hours a day. Right. People don't realize that at all. Yeah. You know. Can, can anybody successfully be on tour and be an immersive traveler at the same time? I mean, you talked about being in Brazil and sort of mm-hmm. going back to your room. Mm-hmm. Could there have been a version of Jay that was out and doing immersive travel at the same time? Yeah. Or was it just too all-consuming? Had I had, I had the... Um the presence of mind. I was I was a lot younger, um, and I was, you know, the whole experience was, you know, I was I was kind of shell shocked when we were done. I mean, I don't, you know, by, I, I by the rock experience or the travel experience. The rock experience. Okay. You know, um, we worked very very hard. It's all we thought about. Um, you know, obviously I would never compare myself to a soldier, but I was at Shauna's house. Um, couple years ago and we we're in the kitchen and we were doing some white zombie business and then we just started bullshitting and, and remembering things and at some point her husband came down and he's like you guys sound like you have PTSD like you know you, you guys sound like like survivors in a survivors meeting you know what I mean and I, and I kind of started thinking like yeah I was completely shell-shocked when I got done with that experience um, I, Shauna was better at that than me. She would, like, we'd, we'd go on tour in Europe and then we'd have a couple weeks off. She would stay in Europe and have her friends come and meet her. She was very smart about it. I was not. 
I was like, I can't wait to get home and practice guitar more. You know, it's like, I just So didn't. she had good travel instincts. She did. Yeah. And what, what's uh, kind of funny is that a person I've met in my life who hates travel more than anybody else is Rob Zombie. Like, he hates touring. He hates traveling. He hates foreign countries. And in Europe, you know, when we first came to Europe, Europe was like, not as Americanized as it is now. Like, there was a lot of shit that you just couldn't fit. You'd be like, why is there a shower head just in the bathroom so when you take the shower, the toilet paper gets wet? What, what, what sense does that make? And it's like every little thing in Europe was like that, you know? And, you know, there, there wasn't, um, it wasn't like the Schengen yet. You know, you had to go through a border to go to every new country. You had to change money in every new country. Like, it was a hassle, you know? Yeah, yeah. But he really hated it more than we did, you know? It's kind of funny that Sean and I have grown up to travel all the time, and I, I'm sure Rob, like, you know, would rather just stay in his house. Are you aware of other, um, you know, musicians or former touring musicians who have become big travelers? I mean, do you think is that a common transition to make, or is it pretty rare? I, I, it seemed to me, you know, when I looked at your Instagram and saw how prolific you were as a traveler, it seemed like, wow, I've never really heard of a former like big arena rock band guy just mm. doing nice humble travel around the world you know i i'm thinking about it and off the top of my head i can't th i mean i i can a lot of people from bands move to other countries um i did see an interview with mike d recently where he was talking about his life now and he is traveling around the world with his kids he uh, i think he's in like um indonesia right now mike d of the beastie Boys. yeah yeah mm -hmm. um and he, he travels around with his kids and puts him in school for six months at a time here and there. And, um, you know, he was talking about how um, MCA's death really rattled him. And mm -hmm. he realized, like, this is all the life I've got and I want to go see stuff. So that's an example. But I can't, like, from, like, rock, I actually, I don't, off the top of my head, I can't really think of somebody who is, is into travel, you know, who's, like, famously into travel. That's funny. I, yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah, well, that's that's what one thing that really caught my eye is. It's, I just thought it was super cool that <clears throat> there was, you know, one minute you were, you know, swinging your dreadlocks over your head in front of twenty thousand people, mm -hmm. and then the next decade you were just sort of quietly living an awesome life on the road. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a quote, and we should probably wrap up pretty soon. Okay, I don't know if you wrote this, if you said that, but it says travel is the new rock and roll. Discovering places, especially places where maybe a lot of people haven't been is exactly the same as discovering music when I was younger, exciting in the same way. It, it feels the same to me. It, yeah. it feels like, um, I don't know, I think part, uh, the, the whole kind of um, Bourdain travel revolution uh, was a big part of it, but... Um, and what do you I, mean Bourdain travel revolution? I mean, for, for a whole lot of people, he was the key. And, and for me too, he was the key to wanting to eat interesting food and go interesting places. It was, it was the first time a lot of people saw on TV somebody doing that, um, making it ultra appealing, you know. Um, you know, I think, I think young people, or I don't know, I don't know about all young people, but the ones I tend to meet um, travel, and that's like their thing. And it feels like kind of a, a generational signifier, the way maybe rock music was when I was a kid. Um, I, you know, it, it's it's very weird. You never could have predicted that, like chefs and travel gurus on TV, sort of occupied the same place that rock stars did in the seventies. Uh -huh. It's uh -huh. it's a weird like who you know it's like vinyl. Like who could have predicted that? You know what I mean? 
Um, but it does, it does feel like rock and roll to me. Um, you know, it does, I mean, rock, really, when I look back at, at rock music, and, and that was, you know, it was, it was a zeitgeist, and it was, like I was saying, I was born in the middle of the British Revolution, or the British Invasion, and, um, you know, for, for my whole teenage life, like, the music was amazing. I was born at the right time, but now, like, the, 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 um, the whole idea of, you know, experiencing, having experiences as opposed to accumulating stuff, very new idea, but that's, you know, that, that seems like this, this kind of planetary alignment, the way, like, rock music was in the 70s, you know. Seems like every time I meet a young person, they, like, don't want a car, they don't want a house, they want to, you know, like, walk the Camino, like, that's what they want. And they want to, you know, get the really good Instagram shot to show off that they did that. Which is, which is a, something we talked about last mm -hmm. night, but we probably won't talk about here. <laughs> we can, there, there'll be other chances to complain about Instagram habits. Bad but behavior, I'm telling you. As a, non, as a lover of music who's a non-musician, I think an interesting thing about that observation is that you feel excitement. I think there's a visceral way... Actually, this is the same with books, too. Like, my first Kurt Vonnegut book, or my first Walt Whitman, the first time I really clicked with Walt Whitman, first time I listened to Fugazi or Jane's Addiction or other mm -hmm. bands that meant a lot to me, there's that excitement that I know won't be replicated, even if I listen to great music, because mm -hmm. it's not that youth. But there are sometimes when I'm in places where I feel that youthful excitement, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that travel is, in a way, is a way of cheating. You know, you can feel a kinds of excitement that you haven't felt for a long time. Absolutely. Simply by sitting in a new place. Well, you know, you remember, like, when, when you were a kid and you waited for, like, three months for this concert to come up and then you actually went in there and now you're in the crowd and you can see the guitars on stage and you have this feeling of like I'm really here and it's exactly the same like when you, you see the pyramids with your own eyes for the first time it's like I'm really it's exactly the same this has been Deviate with Rolf Potts more about everything that was just mentioned including links to Jay Younger's personal website and Instagram can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by myself and Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Bad, bad, bad.